This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. There are 13 chapters in Hebrews, so we are right at the middle. And uh, this is really uh, beginning to get into the very message of Hebrews and talking about Christ and His priesthood and the, the, the covenant. Um, so we're at the, the heart of the book of Hebrews, and really it's the, the heart of the gospel here. Um, so it's one of my favorite chap- chapters in, in all of Scripture. Uh, and there's lots to be covered here, so let's just go right to it. We're going to read through verses 1 through 10 first, and then we're going to address those in some detail. <clears throat> For this Melchizedek, son of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth portion of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, here we get into the topic that the author had brought up earlier and had to pause. And so he returns to this idea, not just of Melchizedek, but also the idea or the theme that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. So let's take this up um, and look at the verses a little closer. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 through 3, or 7, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, uh, really um, gives a quick synopsis of who Melchizedek is. Um, and this is recalled from the only place where we really have any description of Melchizedek, and that's found in Genesis chapter 14. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. 
He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Now, as I said, the historical record of Abraham meeting Melchizedek, the historical record of Abraham uh, destroying the kings uh, is found in Genesis chapter 14. Historically, this is referred to as the Battle of the Vale of Sidim, uh, or also it's called the War of the Nine Kings or the Slaughter of um, uh, Chenilaomer. Um, these are historical events, historical events that occurred around the Jordan River. And during these battles, Abraham's um, nephew Lot was captured and taken away as a prisoner. He would have either been killed in some sort of ritual display or reenactment of the battle to show the great king's uh, victory, or he would have lived as a slave for for that king. Either way, Abraham goes to um, to rescue him. Now these are these would have been smaller kingdoms than what we think of today. Uh, so. Going out with 318 men uh, of his own household, not his descendants at this time. Uh, these were not his descendants. They were people who worked for him, people who had, uh, he had gained their trust. They had gained his trust and they were band together um, uh, through the, just the, 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 the relationships they had. Um, so Abraham goes out to rescue his nephew Lot. He defeats the kings. And on his return, uh, one of the, the kings of Sodom, who had been defeated, uh, comes out to greet him. And also this mysterious man named Melchizedek, who is the king over the city of Salem. Um, Salem, Salam, meaning peace. And we get the, uh, that's also, uh, the city is later called Jerusalem. Um, and he is Melchizedek. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is the king of peace. This name Melchizedek is a compound name. It means my king, Melchi, and Zedek, which means righteousness. And it is translated king of righteousness. And he was also the king of peace because he was the king of this city, Salem which means peace. And he describes him, he is without father or mother or genealogy or having and having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues forever. Without father and without mother. There is nothing in Scripture about the genealogy of Melchizedek. We do not know. As far as the biblical record is concerned, he has no parents, Neither does he have a beginning or an end to his life. Um, now, there's a lot of disagreement about what this means. But I don't think we should read it so literally as to think that Melchizedek still lives today or that he didn't really have a mom and a dad. In the context of this writing, the author is comparing Melchizedek to the Jewish priests, the, the Levitical priesthood. And the role of a priest was to be the intermediary between uh, man and God. And God said that only the men from the tribe of Levi could serve that role. 
So in ancient Israel, in, in, in the ancient Jewish tradition, in their religion, it was very important to validate a man's genealogy before he could be appointed to the priesthood. You had to make sure that he was descended um, from uh, the Levitical tri- or from the tribe of Levi, and more specifically from the family of Aaron. In the case of Melchizedek, there is no genealogy, but God's word clearly says that he was a priest, and this applies directly to Christ as well, because Christ did not come from the tribe of Levi. Levi, he came from the tribe of Judah. So their priesthood comes from the mouth of God himself. And it goes on, but resembling the Son of God, or made like the Son of God. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. The Greek word that's used here is found nowhere else in Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, it uh, It is a suggestive word, in, in meaning that one thing bears the image of something else, like a facsimile or a copy or something is pressed into the image to uh, to look like something else. Now, that's important because what that means here is that the author is saying that they are not the same. The language is clearly comparing two different people that are very much alike in some respects. Um, not paying close enough attention to this word led me to error years ago. And it says he continues as a priest today. It's not that Melchizedek is still alive somewhere. It's not that he lived forever or that he was carried away like Enoch. This is, the, this is in reference to his title as a priest. He wasn't given the title because of his earthly father. God gave him that title. So he doesn't lose it when he dies. Recall in Revelation chapter 5 that John, the apostle, sees a vision of God in heaven and the 24 elders fell down to worship the Lamb of God. And in in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now some translations will say that you have made them kings and priests. Because kings are what reign on earth. A kingdom can reign upon earth, but kings are the ones who rule. And so that is where Melchizedek resides today. In the throne room of heaven, worshiping the Lamb of God and awaiting the consummation of God's eternal kingdom. In the new heavens and the new earth, all of God's people are going to be kings and priests. But Jesus Christ is the King of kings. And the great high priest. It kind of puts a new spin on that term, the king of kings. Because we think about King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Herod, all of the earthly kings. And he is the king over all of those. And that's true. That, that is uh, true as well. But here in 
Revelation chapter 5, it seems to say that all of his believers are going to be kings and priests. And he is the king of kings. And he is the great high priest. This is where Melchizedek resides. This is why he still bears that title of king and priest. Because he was appointed by God to be the, the king that he was and to be the priest that he was. And brothers and sisters, this is our destiny. This is our destiny in Christ. Remember, all that we have, all of our inheritance, all of our future is referred to over and over again in Scripture as in Christ. We receive these blessings in Christ. So yes, if you are in Christ and you are seated on high in heavenly places, you do rule with Him. We exercise that through prayer, through prayer, through fellowship with the church, through pressing on with the kingdom, uh, expanding the kingdom of God. And this is your destiny in Christ if indeed you submit to Him, if indeed you belong to Him. And then we continue in verses 4 through 10. And this really speaks of Melchizedek and his relation now to the uh, to the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood it says see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils and those descendants of Abraham who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers though these also are descended from Abraham but this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him, blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He starts with this big phrase. It jumps out at me. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Of course, this is speaking about Melchizedek. But the author says, see how great this man was. He is working to put Melchizedek, the author is working to put Melchizedek in his proper place in comparison to some very important figures in Jewish history. Abraham. The beginning of their whole nation. And he gave a tenth of the spoils to this uh, priest king, Melchizedek. Now the Greek word here for spoils literally means top of the heap or first fruits. So when Abraham paid the tithes to Melchizedek, he literally gave him the very best of the spoils of war. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these, though these are descended from Abraham. The priesthood of Levi received tithes from the people of Israel by a commandment. Abraham came and voluntarily gave tithes to Melchizedek because he wanted to show reverence to this priest king. He voluntarily, nowhere do we see Melchizedek anywhere in Scripture outside 
of chapter 14. Yes, he's mentioned in Psalm 10 and he's mentioned here in Hebrews 7 or Psalm 110, excuse me, and here in Hebrews chapter 7. But we see who he is and what he's doing in Genesis 14. We don't know anything else about him. But Abraham saw who he was and gave a tenth of the spoils to him. Voluntarily. We don't know anything else. He wasn't commanded to. We don't expect him to. In fact, as you're reading through, it's sort of a surprise that he jumps up there out of nowhere. And here's Abraham coming off of victory comes back to this unknown, mysterious priest, king, and he just gives him a tenth of the spoils, the very best of the tenth of the spoils. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves those who give cheerfully, who give without compulsion, without reluctance, but they give out of, um, out of the joy of it, out of a desire to give. They give out of, uh, with cheerfulness, the scripture says. This makes Abraham's freely offered tithe to Melchizedek far greater than all of the tithes that the Israels paid by commandment that's the point he's pointing out that's the point the author is making this one payment by the patriarch of their nation is greater than all the tithes that were paid by commandment but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from abraham and blessed him who had the promises it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior Again, this, does, this shows us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he blessed Abraham. On his part, when Abraham accepted this blessing, he's acknowledging the fact that Melchizedek was greater than he was. Brothers and sisters, this is not simply a, a, a wishing good upon someone, a well-wishing. I hope things go well with you. You know, I'm, 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 I'm rooting for you. This is not this kind of blessing. That can be done by anyone and for anyone. The blessing spoken of here is the action of a person who is authorized to declare God's good intentions towards someone to do good to them or to bring good to, into their life. And we see this in other places in Scripture. We see it when Isaac blesses Jacob in Genesis 27. We see it when Jacob blesses all of his 12 sons in Genesis chapter 49. And we see it when Moses in Deuteronomy 33 blesses the whole nation of Israel. They're blessing, they're speaking for God that God's intentions towards you are good. In this manner, sons do not bless the fathers. The lesser does not bless the greater. The greater is the one who blesses the lesser. So in this case, we see Melchizedek blessing Abraham. Now, we don't do the same sort of thing in our culture today. Because I I don't stand above you as as your greater, uh, as someone superior, speaking blessings over you because of my position. Because we have God's word. 
God's Word speaks those blessings. And we proclaim them to one another, knowing that the Word itself is greater than all of us. So in this case, we see Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And as far as we know, Melchizedek is the only priest king present in the world at this time. He's the only priest. He's, the only, uh, he's not the only king, but he's the only priest and certainly the only priest king that, that we know of. And he pronounces the blessing of the Most High God upon this newly appointed patriarch of God's covenant people. Now, I want you to notice two things in this interaction. First, Melchizedek recognizes that Abraham is a servant of God and worthy of God's blessings. Second, Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is the priest of God and he is worthy of giving those blessings. And he is worthy of receiving the tithe. Brothers and sisters, this tells us that there must have been some revelation happening during this time that is not recorded for us today. Remember how we started this book? The author said, hey, in days past, in different ways, at different times, God spoke to people in different manners. But today he has spoken to us through his son, through the word, through scripture. This is an example of what was happening there. We don't know how God was communicating to Melchizedek. We know he was speaking directly to Abraham, but we don't know how he was speaking to Melchizedek, but he obviously was. And he may have been revealing himself to others at that time. But the beginning of this book clearly tells us that the only revelation we have now is through Jesus Christ, his son, as recorded in the words that he has preserved for us. And continuing with our text. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. <clears throat> Notice that little phrase there, that little turn of word. He, he says, uh, one might even say, or some would say, or I might could say. Different translations put it different. This is an important phrase because the author is telling us that he is making an allegorical point, And he doesn't intend for it to be taken too literally. His point is that because the tribe of Levi is all descended from Abraham, the author is saying, or is saying that he could claim that in this interaction with Melchizedek, Abraham represented all of the Levites. And what we see is the, in the, uh, is the Old Testament priesthood, essentially the Old Testament priesthood, paying tithes to the priesthood of Melchizedek. This shows Melchizedek's position of authority over Abraham, over Levi, and over all of the Old Testament priests. And from the beginning of his letter, the author has been making the point that Jesus Christ is greater than everything. He is greater than everyone else, greater than all the prophets that came before, greater than uh, 
uh, than Moses who had given the law, greater than the angels that the Lord had sent as messengers. And then here in chapter 7, he is making the same argument, but directing it specifically at the Levitical priesthood. He argues that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Melchizedek was greater than all of the Jewish uh, Levitical priests that came after Aaron. But even at his best, Melchizedek was still only an image bearer of Jesus Christ. And that only in his role as a priest king. So, what do we take away from this? From this passage and from what the author is saying here about Melchizedek? What does this, what would this mean for us today? We are so far removed from first century Israel and even further removed from ancient Israel and the Levitical priesthood. Well, keep in mind that the author of Hebrews here uh, is writing to Jewish believers, to Hebrew believers who are struggling with their faith. They're struggling with their faith. They had grown up in this system. This is what they were used to. They were accustomed and, and, uh, to going to speak to the priest and offering sacrifices. And we know, we've talked about this before, there are those who believe today that at some point in the near future they're going to rebuild the temple and start offering sacrifices again. And we know that every stone laid in that temple for that purpose would be blasphemy against God. And every sacrifice, every drop of blood shed on any altar to try to cover now the sins of men that God has promised to take away by the, sin, by the blood of His Son, all of that would be a blasphemy against Jesus Christ. But we grew up in that tradition. These Hebrew believers did not. So they're struggling with this. Now, uh, the author had already introduced the idea that Jesus is our great high priest back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And we spoke about that and the meaning of that. But that's where he introduced this idea. These Hebrew Christians would have been very interested in understanding how Jesus is their high priest. But they also would have had some very significant objections because Jesus did not fit the mold. He wasn't a, a Levitical priest. or He wasn't from the tribe of Levite. And if those things were not properly addressed, then those objections could have kept them from continuing on to the maturity in Christ that the author is telling them to pursue. So the author began to explain it in chapter 5, but then he had to pause. Remember, he paused to rebuke his readers for their apathy and for their lazy approach to study and exhort them to greater diligence. And that's what he's been doing through chapter 6. In the same way, many Christians today can get hung up on intellectual issues that could be resolved with a little diligent study and uh, uh, interaction with more mature believers. And this could help them get on to greater maturity. 
Many professing Christians get hung up on issues like creation and evolution and miracles and uh, many other things dealing with science because they believe that um, they're in conflict somehow. Others get wrapped up, uh, wrapped around the axle about theological issues, the sovereignty of God versus, you know, the, the free will of man, predestination, election. People get wrapped up around the idea of the Trinity, trying to understand these things. Brothers and sisters, there are some things in Scripture that don't fit into our brains. We have to take it at God's Word. Now, that's not to say that we just have to give up and not try to understand. The the Trinity is clearly given to us in Scripture. We just don't have any reference point whatsoever to try to understand it. We don't, also in scripture, um, election is spoken of. God's sovereignty is clearly expressed in scripture. Man's responsibility is clearly expressed in scripture. These two things exist in our creation. And it can be difficult if you have to have a clear answer as to which one trumps the other, then you are going to struggle. But there are some things in our creation, even in the physical world, that have a dual nature to it, that do not coexist. Light, the very thing that God said, let there be when he started the universe. Light is a particle and it is a wave. Those two things, that was a tremendous discovery a hundred so years ago. Those two things are different they they do not they exist at the same time but they are totally different a wave is energy that moves through a medium a particle is something so you can either be one or the other and light is one or the other at any particular moment uh, i run that little rabbit trail just to make the point that it's hard sometimes to understand some of these doctrines but don't just throw your hands up. Keep keep after it. Keep after it, especially in the application. There will always be issues that you struggle with. And as you mature, this is something I learned from reading Einstein. He said, you guys struggle with your math. I understand that. I struggle with my math. It's just that his math was bigger than everybody else's math. You know, every one of us in this room is struggling with applying some part of Scripture to our lives. Every one of us is struggling with trying to understand some aspect of Christian doctrine. It's just that some of us are struggling with, with you know, well, we're all struggling with different things on some level. Uh, but some of the issues that mature Christians struggle with are, are different than uh, younger Christians. That's the nature of life. That's the nature of growing. That's the nature of maturity. But the more you study, and this is absolutely true, brothers and sisters, the more you apply yourself to understanding what God has said, then the greater will be your confidence and your faith. Because you find that He is true, that His Word is true, and that He is faithful. His Word is faithful. When you apply it, I have yet... And look, I looked for it. I have yet to find where it has failed, where it is not faithful. I looked for it, 
I looked for the fault. I looked for where scripture was wrong. I looked for where the history was wrong, where the reasoning was wrong, because it would have freed me to do whatever I wanted to do. If I had to choose my religion, I would have probably chosen some Greco-Roman thing that allowed me to enjoy my sin. But I couldn't. I couldn't. My conscience was bound and convicted by what I see as the truth of God's Word. So this is what the author was telling his Hebrew uh, readers. Be diligent. Study. Pay attention. Pursue it. And that's what I'm telling you to do the same thing. This is the path to spiritual maturity, which helps us to grow in our faith and our assurance. Now, surely most Christians today, though, aren't struggling with the same objections that first century Jews did. But there are other lessons to learn from Melchizedek. The Messiah is promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. Then, as we continue to read the Old Testament, we see many things that foreshadow the coming Messiah. Rachel, love, lay down. Just lay on your side. It's okay. I'm not going to be upset with you. I know it was a late night, and I know you're struggling hard to keep your eyes open. It's making my eyes water watching you. No, don't feel bad, my love. Just uh. And Messiah um, is promised. The Messiah is promised back in Genesis 3. Then, as we continue to read through the Old Testament, we see many things that foreshadow the coming Messiah. The ark, the ark that saved Noah and his family, points to salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a boat caught in a storm. Lots of water, lots of animals inside of it. But the message is there is salvation that God will provide. Abraham, his call to sacrifice Isaac. But then there's a lamb that is given instead. God provided that, pointing to Christ. Moses, acting as our Redeemer, as the person that goes before uh, Pharaoh to speak for the people. The whole story of the Exodus and the Passover meal, pointing to Christ. Many details about the building and the construction and the moving and all the many details about the tabernacle and then later, later the temple all pointed us to the promised Messiah. Amen. Melchizedek is another image, another foreshadowing, another uh, signpost in the Old Testament that's pointing to this promised Savior. <clears throat> Melchizedek was not only a king, but he was a, a priest of the Most High God. Now, any of you who study history know that history proves that you cannot combine the roles of civic and religious authorities. It leads to disaster. That is why God forbid the kings of Israel from being priests. And He forbid the priests from being kings. And we see that in 2 Chronicles 26 when uh, King Uzziah, in his impatience, in his arrogance, thought that he would go ahead and perform the, the, the rites of the priest. And God struck him with leprosy. And took his role as king away from him. So, having God declare him a priest and a king makes Melchizedek 
a very unique and significant man in Scripture. Old Testament priests served as mediators between humans and God. It was the priest who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus is our mediator. He is our great high priest. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 I don't care what anybody else's church or tradition says. There's one man, or there's one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. One. And the king, or the, uh, the angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. Christ is the king that was crowned in Daniel's vision in 7. Christ is the king that's crowned in Revelation 5 and 6. Christ is the everlasting king and the everlasting priest. The king takes care of his people. That's what he does. He provides for them. He protects them. That's what Christ promises us all through Scripture. And then he mediates for us because we fail so often. Because we bring... We bring God's wrath upon us when we sin. And Christ removes that. Now concerning Melchizedek, there's another important lesson that is found. And that's in the significance of his name. Notice how it's explained in verse 2. By translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem. That is the King of Peace. Now, the order of these names is sort of subtle in the way that it's put in the text, but it's very important. First, Melchizedek, his very name, he is called the king of righteousness. Then, he is called the king of peace. Righteousness comes before peace. That is a very important theological truth. Righteousness comes before peace. Remember, in the birth of Christ, in Luke 2.14, the angels were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace towards those whom, in whom he is well pleased. This is the peace that we seek. Peace in our relationship with an omniscient, omnipotent God. That's what we look for. Brothers and sisters, can we agree that after all that we've studied through, throughout Scripture... That there is no true, lasting peace without a right relationship with God. And then Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never be at peace with God unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, 
those are two groups of people that he chose specifically to make the impression because the scribes knew the law better than anybody else and the Pharisees strive to apply it to their lives better than anybody else. Those were the group, those two groups of people were the most religious, pious, righteous living people that the Jews could point to. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord pulled the rug out from under them by showing that it's not just in their actions, but it's in your heart before God that makes you righteous. And the only person that can truly claim this righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. Remember what we read this morning. We were reading about the law. To love your lo- the, to lo- the law is uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to do that every moment of every day, to love your neighbor as yourself. In order to do that, you must be in a perfect relationship with God, knowing His will in every moment above everything else. And then following that. Following that because you seek to glorify Him, you seek to honor Him. None of us has ever done that. Oh my goodness, that's why we need Christ. That's why we need this promised Messiah. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, in the letter to the church at Sardis, Jesus promises to give us white garments. That represents his righteousness. He will give us his righteousness. Remember the story of the, of the great wedding banquet. When the people came in and the king was providing them with, their, with the robe or the clothes they were supposed to wear. Representing the righteousness of Christ. And somebody tries to get in with their own clothes. And they're cast out. Now, some people today look for peace in all kinds of things. They look for peace in money. They look for peace in health and meditation. They look for peace in in being part of the right uh, religious group or being a part of the right political group. They look for peace in all any number of things. But true peace is only found in true righteousness. And true righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. This was the promise. Man brought condemnation upon God's creation by our sin, but God promised to send someone who could and would restore our righteousness. And it is His righteousness that He gives to us. It makes us right before God. And then we can have peace with God. We all know that we are guilty before God. And look, you and I, we operate on a personal level. I offend you. You forgive me, forget about it. You offend me. I forgive you, forget about it. We keep on moving on. So why can't God just forget about it? Why does he have to address sin with all of this? Because God, as we said last week, is perfectly just. He's perfectly just. It is in the same way that parents deal with their children. If there's not discipline involved in their life, then pretty soon you'll find that you have an undisciplined, unruly child. But God's justice is not just to keep peace in his house. God's justice is a representation of who he is. It flows from his very character and nature. So when you violate his justice, it's an affront to him. You violate him. And because of who God is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons 
perfect in perfect unity in love with one another. When you violate one, you bring the wrath of the other two upon you. Now, I'm not trying to divide God up, but I'm trying to show you how those relationships work. Why God is not just going to turn his back or look at your sin through his finger like some grandfather. No, he's going to atone for it. And he has promised to get it done. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, King David wrote Psalm 110, which we mentioned earlier, which is a royal psalm. And it's looking forward to the promised Messiah. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We've already seen that quoted in Hebrews. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments. Those holy garments representing His righteousness. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is, again, King David pointing toward the Messiah, but referencing back to Melchizedek. Outside of the earthly priesthood, a priesthood appointed by God Himself. Now, if I haven't made the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek clear enough yet, I've got one more bit of evidence to share with you. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, this is after Abraham has defeated the kings and he's coming back. And it says, And Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. Now, this is remember, this is before his name changed. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Brothers and sisters, did you notice that Melchizedek didn't bring out milk and honey? He didn't bring out figs or raisin cakes. He didn't bring out the fatted calf. Remember when the three guys come out of the desert and approached Abraham? He broke out the fatted calf, told his wife, start cooking. The prodigal son came back. The father broke out the fatted calf. Nope. Here Melchizedek comes out to bless Abraham and he brings bread and wine. You should immediately recognize this as the elements of the Lord's Supper. Now, this was, of course, before the Exodus, before the Passover meal, and certainly way before the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper that we observe. And granted, the author of Hebrews doesn't make any connection to this. He doesn't make any connection here to the Lord's Supper. He doesn't make the connection in Hebrews to the Lord's Supper and the bread and wine in um, Genesis 14. So, yeah, they could have just at that time just seen it as King Melchizedek or the priest King Melchizedek bringing out sustenance and water food and water uh, whatever but I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word that means I believe that in the original the way it is written every word was inspired God 
was using the men, yes, but he was putting down the words that he wanted in the order, in the arrangement that he wanted. Has it been preserved perfectly all through history? I think we've seen where some mistakes have been made because the, uh, uh, the copying wasn't necessarily inspired, but by God's providence, he has preserved his word. The, the book of Daniel that you read today is, this, is the same as the book that was found in uh, Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls 2,500 years ago. Now, it wasn't found 2,500 years ago. It was hidden about that time. And it was found in the middle of the last century. So I believe that those words were chosen and put there. If the priesthood of Melchizedek is foreshadowing Christ, then can we not recognize the bread and the wine as possibly being foreshadowing the Lord's Supper? Like I said, certainly it wouldn't have meant the same thing to them. It was just bread and wine, sustenance. But to us, it is significant. I've mentioned many times that I cannot look at bread and wine on any table, in any context, in this world, and not think of my Savior and all that He has done for me. I cannot look at bread and wine in any context and not think of the new covenant, not think of the cross. So, of course, when I come here and I see it in Scripture, I am going to make that connection. There are people who I've heard and seen write about this and say it's, it's an error to make that connection. Well, I disagree. I absolutely disagree. It is significant. There's a reason the Lord chose bread and wine. Every culture has some form of bread and fruit from a vine that's fermented. And God knew this in His providence when Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. God knew that I would stand here this morning and preach to you about it and make this connection. And God also knew that we would be absorbing the Lord's Supper today. I had forgotten that. Brother David reminded me yesterday. But in God's providence, He brings these things together, these little things. And these are the little things in life, brothers and sisters, that I just find great joy in, knowing that the Lord has got His hand in my life, in your lives, in the life of this church. So, we come to the end of our sermon, and I ask those brothers to come forward who's going to, who are going to serve up um, the Lord's Supper for us this morning.